Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles together and open to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're making our way this summer verse by verse through these uh, first chapters of Luke's Gospel. We come today to verse 20. The title of the message, Two Sorts of People. Two Sorts of People. Now, if you've uh, applied for a new job in the last 10 years or enrolled in college or even gone on any sort of corporate retreat, chances are someone has tried to give you a personality assessment. I've probably taken a dozen in my life, and they vary. One of them divides uh, the culture into 16 distinct personality types. Another popular one has five. I even took one that uh, ascribes you an animal as a personality. You're either a bear or an otter, a lion or a golden retriever. I think mine came back armadillo. After taking probably a dozen of these tests, I figured out what personality I am. I'm the kind of personality that makes fun of personality tests. <laughs> because my love language is sarcasm. You know, they tell you on these tests, there's no right or wrong answer, but I've been proven wrong on that many times. There are wrong answers. Well, the, the point of all that is that as humans, we attempt to sort and categorize one another ad infinitum, ad nauseum. And the Bible does not do that, as I've told you many times. It divides all of us into two broad categories. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 6. Let's read about it. Luke 6, 20. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word today. Now, collectively, these blessings that we've just read about are known as the Beatitudes. And that's because the Latin phrase means happiness or happy. And so the best definition that I've come across of the blessed are those in the happy condition of being right with God. There's not a more happy condition than to be right with God. And unfortunately, so many in our world are anything but right with God. Some of them know it, some of them don't. But Jesus puts two categories of people in front of us, the blessed and the curse. And with each one, he gives a condition and a result because of that condition. And he does something very surprising with those he calls blessed or happy. He begins with a group of people usually thought by the culture to be unhappy. 
and he calls them happy. But of course, Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. That was the great problem that so many people had with Jesus' teaching. They always interpreted his teaching through the lens of the sensual, what they could see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. But almost always, Jesus was teaching in the realm of the spiritual, that which is eternal. And that's the case here. We know that because Matthew adds the phrase, in the spirit, to these blessings. Now, Luke's is an abbreviated version of the Beatitudes. He has only four blessings and, and four curses. But let's walk through them this morning. First of all, the blessed. The blessed. Now, man's basic problem is that he's not right with God. And the reason he's not right with God is because God is holy and man is a sinner. And that sin separates him from God and fellowship with God. And so the ultimate question in life is how can man be made right with God? And if you're a born again Christian here today, you know the answer to that. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the only way a person can be made right with God. Jesus told his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. He doesn't describe many ways to heaven of which Jesus happens to be one, he makes exclusive claims that he is the only way that a person can be made right with God. And in describing how to be right with God, he is describing in these verses the character of those who would be right with God. He's not saying here's a moral paradigm that if you'll try to live up to it, then maybe you can hope to be right with God. He's saying if these are your characteristics, rejoice because these are the characteristics of people who are right with God. So first of all, he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor, which we said last week means utterly broken and dependent upon others for survival. It means a beggar. Now once again, Jesus is not commending poverty. And he's not belittling the poor. Remember, we interpret scripture by scripture. And Matthew adds the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That is, they have kingdom citizenship. Now that phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, is, is somewhat mysterious. Exactly what does it mean? Well, it means for someone who is a kingdom citizen, is their home is there. And they have all the rights and privileges of being a kingdom citizen. Now what are some of the rights and privileges of being a a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, first and foremost, there's eternal life, right? We have life and life more abundant, which means that in this life, and you'll notice he doesn't say they will be citizens of the kingdom. He says theirs is the kingdom. They've already attained that citizenship, meaning that there is life to live now, as I just said, but we are pilgrims. We are passing through a place where we are aliens and strangers, the Bible says, on our way to the place where our true citizenship resides, which is eternally in heaven. But in the meantime, the Lord gives us in this life joy for the journey. He gives us grace for the day. He gives us peace that passes human comprehension. He gives us the indwelling presence of the Spirit to lead us into all truth. And ultimately, He gives us glorification when we die or He comes for us. Yet we must admit, there is a great tension between what is now and what is in the future. I have a friend who says there are a lot of Christians who have over-realized eschatology. What he means by that is there is a heaven and they think it's in the here and now. And it's not. This is not our best life now. Jesus, when he sent out his 
apostles for the first time, as recorded in Luke chapter 9, verse 2, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, what it is and how to be a part of it. And here are some characteristics of that kingdom that we find in Scripture. First of all, I believe that it is a literal kingdom. There are those who, who say it's just a metaphorical kingdom. Or God only resides in our heart, but there is not a heaven to gain and uh, a hell that's literal as well. That's not what the Bible says. Scripture says that when we're saved, we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It is a literal kingdom. But unlike the kingdoms of this world, it is also an eternal kingdom. And if you remember your history lessons, when you were studying Western civilization, you found out there were a number of empires and dynasties in world history, but they all had one thing in common. They had a beginning date, they had an ending date, and a hyphen in the middle, right? And so when one dynasty and kingdom ended, another one would take its place, and so it's happened down through the ages. Not so with God's kingdom. His is a kingdom that will never fail. It is eternal, and therefore to be part and a citizen of His kingdom means eternal life. How do you enter into this kingdom? Now, there are a number of ways to gain citizenship in this world. You might have noticed last week where our Congress granted a child who was terminally ill with citizenship so that he could come here for treatment. You can inherit citizenship, as most of us did from our parents. You can buy your citizenship in some countries in the world. But there's only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven, to be a kingdom citizen, and that is through regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. You have to be born again to enter God's kingdom. It's not inherited. It can't be bought or sold. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They are in the happy condition of being right with God. And then he follows that up and he says, blessed are the hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Now hunger is a symptom of the root problem of poverty, right? Hungry, uh, to be hungry, not just because we haven't eaten in two hours, but to be deprived of the nutrition that we need. And he says, blessed are, are the hungry. Now, of course, he means for righteousness. Blessed are the hungry for God's kind of righteousness, which is simply a desire to be on right terms with God. If there was ever a person in the Bible who hungered for righteousness, that is, who desired intently to be on right terms with God, it was King David. In fact, the Bible describes him as a man who was after God's own heart. And for years I struggled. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It means that David desired a right standing and a right relationship with God. We see that in Psalm 51. After David has been uh, discovered in sin. The prophet Nathan rebuked him and God's Holy Spirit convinced David that, that he was right and he was broken man. And he desires that intimacy and fellowship that he once had with God. And he cried out and he poured it out on page. And he said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bind up and mend the bones that you have broken. Please don't withdraw your Holy Spirit from me. The worst Fate imaginable to David was not having intimacy and fellowship with God. It was David who penned those beautiful words, like a deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. David wanted fellowship. He was hungry for righteousness. Adrian Rogers used to say, do you know how much of God you have? 
He would have people in his church say, I wish I felt closer to God. He says, how, how much of God do you have? And he would say, as much as you want. And I think that's exactly right. God's not hiding himself from us. He's not playing a game of cosmic hide and seek. He has revealed himself in his word. This is the, his divine standard. And if we have strayed from God and we're not walking close with God, he's not the one who's moved. We have. So he says, Blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness. And the promise is they will be satisfied. They will be filled. If you want intimacy with God, you will receive it. Now, now there's a warning I think we must attach here. And that is the more closely you are walking with the Lord, the more obvious your own sinfulness becomes. Right? Because He is pure. He is the divine standard. Now, if you're not walking close with the Lord... It's easy to convince yourself that you're okay, right? Because you don't have His holiness showing you what true righteousness looks like. And so when we walk close with the Lord, it doesn't mean you're happy all the time. We sing a hymn sometimes that, now I'm happy all the day now that I'm a Christian. I'm like, I'm not. (laughs) Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I have days where I'm unhappy and dissatisfied. And often that is when I think of my own sinfulness and laziness, and lack of progress in sanctification. So to walk closely with the Lord doesn't mean you you live in a state of unbroken happiness all the time. It does mean that you have undeniable joy, that your sins are forgiven, and you are in right standing with God. Blessed are the hungry, for they'll be satisfied. And then thirdly, the third beatitude here is, blessed are those who weep now. Blessed are those who weep now. What do you weep over? And when we're children, we will cry over just about anything, right? A broken toy or a lost dime. Um, I heard about a little girl who uh, was playing in her room, and she screamed to the top of her lungs, and she began crying, and her mother ran up the stairs to see what in the world was wrong. And she noticed that her daughter had found an old pair of her white dress gloves that ladies used to wear, and, and she held up her hands, and she said, Mama! Did you know that if I only had one more finger, I could count to 11? (laughs) And so we cry sometimes over silly things. I've seen grown men cry at football games when it didn't turn out their way. When Jesus says, blessed are those who weep now, he's talking about those who weep over not broken dreams, but broken laws. In other words, they are brokenhearted over their own sinfulness. Now, there are those who would tell you that the biggest problem we have in our culture is too much guilt. People feel guilty. That's why they're they're unhappy all the time. Not what the Bible says. The Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. Guilt and feelings of brokenness sometimes are a good thing. In fact, the Scripture says there is a sorrow over sin that is the will of God. And there is a blessing attached to those who weep now over their sin. They will laugh in the future. That is, God will turn their sorrow into joy. Weeping lasts but a night. Joy comes in the morning, the scripture says. This is the laughter of relief. This is the the joy of disaster avoided. If you've ever been in a near fatal car accident and you swerve at the last second and everything's fine, you sometimes erupt in spontaneous laughter, right? I remember once as a college student, I was uh, 
working as a camp counselor deep in the piney woods of Mississippi. And one evening, one of the guys got the bright idea, let's take a nighttime hike into the forest. And so we did, and we got lost as we could be. And we thought we were going to have to spend the night in the woods. And we prayed the Lord would help us find our way home. And pretty soon we saw a light. And when we recognized it as our campsite, we laughed all the way home. That's the image I get here. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. The laughter of salvation and of joy. And then he says, fourthly, blessed are those who are hated. And then he gets very specific about what kind of hatred he's talking about here. Now, there are some people who, who think there's some sort of merit or value in everybody disliking them. So they go around mistreating people and doing things that offend people. And, and then when someone says something about it, they go, oh, you're persecuting me for my faith. And I want to say, no, you're being persecuted for being a jerk, not for your faith. So we need to be sure that we understand what Jesus is saying here. And he says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil, comma, now hear this, for the sake of the Son of Man. You are blessed when people hate you for your association with Jesus. Because Jesus said that a servant is not better than his master. And we know that Jesus was hated and scorned and insulted and ostracized. Jesus warned people that would be followers of his to count the cost, right? Don't enter into a relationship with Jesus or profess faith in Jesus flippantly on the spur of the moment or on a whim. Because those that follow Jesus sometimes lost everything. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you when you've lost father, mother, sister, or brother, you'll get many more in the kingdom, right? Some lost everything financially. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, he says, leave everything and follow me. They left. And they reminded Jesus of that a few times. Lord, we left all to follow you. Some lose status. Just by naming the name of Christ in our culture today, some people are going to think you unintelligent, unsophisticated. Some have lost their freedom by association with Jesus. There are people today in prison for nothing more than being a Christian. And some, of course, in every epic of history have given the ultimate sacrifice. They've lost their life as a Christian martyr. And that's happening today. But Jesus says those people are not to be pitied. These people are to be congratulated. These people are in the happy condition of being in right standing with God. And then he says there, there's a couple of reasons for that. He, he says, be glad in that day, verse 22, that is in the day of your persecution, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way the fathers used to treat the prophets. And so one reason you can have joy in the midst of persecution is you know it's temporary, right? We can endure almost anything so long as we know it's not permanent. And no matter what you're going through today, if you're a Christian, whether it's physical problems or disease or literal persecution for the sake of the gospel, leap for joy because it is temporary. You have a heavenly home with great reward awaiting you. And then he says you can also rejoice because now you are coming alongside the prophets of the Old Testament because they were treated that way too, if you'll remember. Think of Jeremiah. 
great prophet of God. When I hear pastors complaining because they, they don't have any statistics to impress people with, how many people come to their church or how many people they're baptizing, I'm reminded of Jeremiah. As far as I know, Jeremiah never had one person he could point to and say he converted. No one believed Jeremiah. He kept telling them that God was going to destroy their city, and they said, no, he's not. They got so tired of him, they cast him into a slimy pit just to get rid of him. And then they used to pay prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear, that everything was going to be fine. And so he says, you're like the prophets. And by the way, we saw last week that one of the offices of Jesus is that he's the prophet, right? In addition to being uh, our, our king and our priest, he proclaims the truth. And so to be associated with Jesus in his prophetic role is honor unto itself. So he says, blessed to be congratulated are those who are hated for their association with Jesus. Now he turns the page and he uses this great transitional conjunction, verse 24, but, but, that is instead, on the other hand, here's the other category. Remember I told you there's two broad categories? He's given us four examples of the blessed, now he gives us four examples of the cursed. But woe or curse to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now remember, these correspond to the blessings. So blessed are the poor in spirit. We could say also, cursed or woe are the rich in spirit. That is the self-satisfied, the self-righteous. Those who don't understand their sinfulness and don't see their need of a savior. They are fine, they think, spiritually. They have no need. These specifically, I think, speaking of the religious elite and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They didn't see any need of a savior. They had it all figured out in, in their mind. But before we're too hard upon the Pharisees, we need to be reminded that even Christians, if we're not careful, after we've been walking with the Lord for a number of years, can fall into these same attitudes, that we're fine. In fact, entire churches can do that, as John's pointed out in the book of Revelation. Remember the church at Laodicea? Jesus sent them the message, you say to yourself that we're rich, increased with goods, and in need of nothing. They say, I, I tell you, you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And so we must uh, walk in humility and understand that not only when we came to Christ did we have nothing to offer Him, we are sustained by that same grace. Woe to the rich. He says, you, you've got all the comfort you're going to have in this life. Now take a person who has perfect health, everyone loves them, at best, at best, they're going to live for 110 years, and it's very unlikely they live that long. More likely into their 70s, and then it's going to be over. But a person who recognizes their spiritual poverty and trust in the richness of God's mercy will enjoy the comfort of those riches for all of eternity. And then he says, woe to those who are well fed now. That is, woe to those who don't sense a craving for intimacy and fellowship with God. That is, they're satiated, they are full of the things of the world. And I think one of the reasons that even Christians don't manifest this hunger for righteousness is that we're full of entertainment, we're full of distraction, we're full of things that aren't necessarily evil, but they just aren't the best. And we are satisfied 
with that which is not the best. And the best is fellowship and intimacy with Christ. And then he says, woe to those who laugh now. I think he's specifically saying of those who scorn and mock and laugh at the things of God. In the book of 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter talks about what's going to happen in the last day when the world's going to melt with fervent heat. But he says, there will come in the last times scorners, he called them. Those that ask us questions like, where's the promise of his coming? I thought Jesus was coming back. Where is he? Everything's going along just as it always has been because he's not coming back, is he? And they make fun and they scorn and they belittle. And Peter says they don't remember that that's exactly the way people were behaving towards Noah. Right before that first big drop of water hit someone right between the eyes. (laughs) And they weren't laughing anymore. He says, woe to those who laugh now. And then he says... um, Woe to you, verse 26, when all men speak well of you. I think this speaks specifically to our culture. Because if there's anything that our culture is known for, this generation is known for, it's our desire for attention and fame. I think for for many generations before us in the Western world, the, the great temptation was avarice and greed. Money, people wanted money, but today it's fame. People today want, want to be known, and they don't care how they get known. <laughs> Whether it's YouTube or, or all the other social media outlets, in some way, they want people to remember their name. But Jesus says, woe or cursed is a person when all men speak well of you. Now we think, well, that's a great, you want everybody to think you're, you're a great person. But, it, but here's the thing. If you're speaking the truth to this wicked culture, not everyone's going to think you're great, right? They didn't think Jesus was. Now, now the Bible says to be sure, when the gospel is proclaimed, some receive it with joy. It is a, a, a wonderful smell to them. But to those who are rejecting it, it makes them nauseous, right? It makes them angry when we talk about the things of God. So, so If you're living in a world or you're going to an office building and everybody there thinks you're the tops, you probably need to examine your life to see if you're being as clear and vocal about your witness for Jesus as you ought to be. And because Jesus says here, that's the way they used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Remember those, the difference between the true prophets and the false prophets? The true prophets like Jeremiah got thrown in the pit and the false prophet got paid handsomely to tell everyone that this is your best life now, right? Come and get it. So Jesus is calling people to be on one or two sides. He's not saying there's 16 slots to fall into. He's saying you're either those who are to be congratulated because you're in right standing with God, or you're to be pitied because you stand cursed before the Lord. Friends, he's talking about heaven and hell. And so I'll put it to you today. What category are you in? See, Jesus summed up this sermon as recorded in Matthew 6, 33, when he said to his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added into you. He's not saying to go sit on your hands and not work hard. He's saying you have to prioritize the kingdom of God over every other thing in your life. 
What does that look like to prioritize the kingdom of God? Well, I think first and foremost, in the area of salvation, that you give attention to your soul. Remember the man who had a great bumper crop, the farmer, and he says, what am I going to do? Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my little barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll put my feet up. I have enough for years to come. And Jesus called that man a fool because that night his life was required of him. And he says, so it is for those who are not rich towards God. Those who don't invest in the spiritual and have all of their eggs in the physical basket. That's why Peter said, heaven and earth are going to melt away with fervent heat. Why in the world would you be so heavily invested in something that's guaranteed to be worth zero at some point in the future? And so pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. Make sure first and foremost that you have entered into kingdom citizenship through the small gate of faith in Christ. And so I put it to you. Are you a kingdom citizen? Or are you the outside looking in? You're a kingdom citizen if you've trusted in nothing but Christ alone and His work on the cross and His glorious resurrection for your eternal future. You're outside of the kingdom of God if you're depending on anything else. And even when you have assurance that you're a kingdom citizen, then you have to prioritize obedience and personal holiness and evangelism and telling as many people as possible how they can be a kingdom citizen. That's what it means to proclaim the kingdom of God. And as far as I can tell, that has not changed in the 2,000 years since Christ first said these words. Still today, to be congratulated, happy is the person who is in the blessed condition of being in a right state with his God. What about you? If you're not, you can be today. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for these beatitudes. And I remember memorizing them. As so many in this room did. In Sunday school. Vacation Bible school. And really having no comprehension of what they mean. And Father, so many today believe them to be some ethical paradigm. That if they try harder, they can make life here better. But, but the truth is, without being a kingdom citizen, we cannot enter into these blessings. So Father, I pray that uh, you'd open the eyes of the lost here today to see their only hope is through Jesus, not through self-improvement. And Father, I, I pray that you would help all of us to see that this is an exclusive message, that the only way to be made right with you, our holy God, is through relationship with your precious Son. So Father, I thank you that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for even the vilest sinner such as I to be made right with you. And that is he's taken your wrath on the cross and he is willing to give us his righteousness if we will repent of sin and confess him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that some would do that here today for your name's sake and your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.